Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of God to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really happy to be here with you. I'm humbled to sit under God's word with you. And before I pray and we dive in, I just want to name what I suspect is a question looming heavy in lots of our minds. And I want to share with you briefly why this is not a sermon about homosexuality this morning. Now, here's the deal. The Bible speaks clearly about sex and our bodies and God's purpose for us in all those things. And we've preached those passages here. And if you're someone who struggles with sex and your body, we'd love to serve those of you who struggle in these realms. And if you have questions, we'd love to give clarity to you. But but I want to just name for you, there's six central passages in the Bible that concern homosexuality. We're not going to walk through them. I'm not even going to put them on the screen. I'm just going to lay them out for you. If you want to jot them down, you can. If not, no pressure. I'm not going to check your work afterwards. <clears throat> Genesis 2, 20 to 24, we, t- we see discussion of gender and the origin of marriage. In Leviticus, there's two passages in chapter 18, verse 22, and in chapter 20, verse 13, that talk about holiness codes as it pertains to sex. In Romans chapter one, verses 26 and 27, Paul names male and female homosexual sins in that list. And in our passage this morning is interesting because Paul names technical terms for both the active and the passive partner in male homosexual relationships. And in 1 Timothy chapter one, verse 10, we see homosexuality mentioned again. Now, here's what I wanna say. Paul isn't singling out homosexuality in this passage. In fact, he's, he's naming for the Corinthians something that they dealt with and faced on a daily basis, okay? In the temples of Venus and Aphrodite in Corinth, sacred prostitution, both homosexual and heterosexual, was part of worship there. So idolatry and homosexual and heterosexual sin was a key thing that the Corinthians faced every day. And so Paul doesn't name homosexual sin as some kind of specific means for highlighting who's outside the parameters of God's kingdom. In fact, his point is, apart from God's grace, all of us are outside the parameters of God's kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? Apart from God's grace, all of us are outside the parameters of God's kingdom. Paul names this list to highlight what the Corinthians were facing on the daily so he could remind them and us of the righteousness of God 
and the grace of God. Those are the two things that I want us to hear from God's word or receive from God's word this morning. So let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Father, that is my desire that you would help us. Spirit of the living God, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in the word of God? Holy Spirit, would you draw our gaze up to see Jesus and him glorified? Would we see the Father and his holy authority? And would you help us? I'm, I'm so humbled that Paul loves us enough, God, and that you love us enough to inspire Paul to write to us about our tendency to be deceived. You don't do that to rub our nose in our deception. You do that to correct us, to love us, to exhort us, to challenge us, to change us. So I ask, living God, that you would open all of our eyes to see the truth of your word here in this passage. And for those that are not yet following you, you would do the work to wash them, to sanctify them, to justify them. And for those in this room, God, by your grace that are following you, that have become inheritors of the kingdom of God, would you correct us? Would you remind us? Would you serve us so that we are not given to deception? I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Hey, I, don't, I don't know if you've picked it up yet, but the Corinthians were a lot like us. Every single group imaginable from every family background, every economic class, every demographic category made up the church at Corinth. They were just like us. They struggled just like us with identity, with money, with relationships, with conflict, with sex. And just like many of us, some of these people at Corinth had encountered Jesus and Jesus had changed everything for him. Like when, when, when you meet Jesus, all bets are off. Everything gets reoriented, resized. And there were many at Corinth, just like me and just like you, that met Jesus and everything for them had been changed. And just like me and just like you. They struggled with obedience to him. They struggled to integrate elements of the gospel of Jesus into their lives. And hey, check this out. Just like us, the Corinthians were prone to follow faddish teaching that sounded incredible but was hollow and destructive and unhelpful. Just like us, the Corinthians were prone to be deceived. Now what's funny is like, I don't know if that strikes you and you get defensive. You're like, I'm, I'm not, my mama didn't raise no dummy. I'm, I'm not prone to be deceived. All of us are prone to be deceived. 
all the time. And, and we get deceived for various reasons, right? We get deceived because we didn't know. We get deceived because someone took the word of God and twisted it in our lives. And we get deceived because we want to be. We don't want to obey God or we don't want our lives to fall under the rule of his word. So we gladly open ourselves to deception. Paul writes to correct that for us. Do you see this language in the beginning of our passage? Look at verse nine with me if you would. Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? And by the way, he's not being snarky. He's not being cynical. This is Paul using a rhetorical device to get their attention and say, hey, this is important. Hey, this is important. Think about all the things that each of our pastors do here. And if you've been here long enough, you know all their ticks. Like the things that we do to let you know that this especially should have an underline underneath it. I had a pastor for years that would say, put your seatbelt on. I wanted to shake him. I didn't like it. It wasn't helpful for me. Hey, put your seatbelt on. Put your seatbelt on. Here we come. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, put your seatbelt on. Now here's what blows my mind about this phrase. This phrase occurs 17 times in the New Testament. Do you not know? 10 of which are in Paul's letters. Put your seatbelts on. Six of which are in chapter six of 1 Corinthians. A third of the uses of this phrase appear in one chapter of scripture. Look in verse two of 1 Corinthians six. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse three, do you not know that we're to judge angels? Verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, do you not know that if you're joined to a prostitute, you become one with her? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Paul is telling us, hey, this stuff really matters. And every single word, I believe, every single word, of the Bible has been inspired by an infinite and holy and loving God to give gifts to us. Not a single word is wasted. And not a single word you're like, oh, that was for them. It doesn't matter for us now. Or Paul had just had a bad night. Paul was trying to meet a publishing deadline. No, under the inspiration of God, every word matters. And Paul's telling us in this chapter, especially that what he's saying matters. And it doesn't just matter for them, brothers and sisters, it matters for you. It matters for me. Paul is in these short verses that we're looking at this morning. He's spanning the entirety of the chapter of chapter six. He's bridging the relational conflict and legal struggles that we see in verses one to eight and actually connecting them with the sexual promiscuity and prostitution that we're gonna see in verse 12 to 20. And he's bringing us under this one reality that says, hey, all the solutions to all of our deceptions regarding relationship, money, behavior, bodies, and our sexual union with others, all of those realities are shaped under the kingdom of God. 
What a, what a powerful concept Paul lays down for us in verse 10. The kingdom of God, which of course he introduced to us back in chapter four of 1 Corinthians. And he said, hey, the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God, by the way, is what Jesus tells us in Luke chapter four, verse 43, that he came to devote himself to preaching. Jesus said, hey, I've got to go teach and tell others about the kingdom of God. It's why I came. And the end of Acts, the last verses of Acts, Luke tells us that Paul in Rome devoted himself to preaching the kingdom of God. So what we have in front of us, though the verses are short, is central, like in a gravitational way to God's purposes for your life today and God's gifts for our lives forever. So I, I just want us to look at two things. This, Paul makes this twofold correlation out of the kingdom of God. So I just have two points for you this morning. I don't have a poem. I hope that's okay, that you can just handle two points and nothing else. I want us to talk about the requirements of the kingdom of God. And I want us to talk about the grace of the king of the kingdom. Here's another way to phrase it within Paul's language here. The first point I want us to talk about together is do not be deceived. God is more righteous than we could ever fathom. Do not be deceived. God is more righteous than we could ever fathom. Deception tries to make God's righteousness smaller and my sin and unrighteousness smaller. Paul says, hey, put your seatbelts on. That's a mistake. Do not be deceived, Paul says. God's righteousness, God is more righteous than we could ever fathom. And the second point we're gonna look at together is, do not be deceived. God is more gracious than you or I could ever dream. God's more gracious than you and I could ever dream. So let's look at point one. Do not be deceived. God is more holy or righteous than we could ever fathom. And look with me at verse nine. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's talking about standards here, right? Now, I don't know if you're using an ESV Bible or if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles along the windowsills on both sides here. You can grab one and take one. But it's important to note that in the ESV here, we have a footnote. Do you not know that the unrighteous and the translators want us to know that Paul is playing with this word related to wrongdoing? The footnote there says, or wrongdoers. And they're not giving you a choose your own adventure option of words. They're helping us understand what they're translating so that we can see the logic that Paul is bringing to us because Paul in the previous section has talked about suffering wrongdoing. He was like, hey, why wouldn't you rather be wronged? Why, why, why wouldn't you rather, for the sake of gospel unity, let somebody have the $150 they owe you? Why wouldn't you rather be wronged? But he says, hey, in, instead of um, being wronged, you yourselves wrong others, verse eight. He says in six, seven, you, you should be willing to be wronged. But instead, you do wrong. Now check this out. He moves in verse nine to say, 
the problem in our lives isn't just that we experience wrongdoing at the hands of others or that we do wrong by our own hands. The problem that humans face is we are wrong. It's not just that we do wrong. We are wrong. We're in the wrong. We're unrighteous, not just in what we do, but in the disposition of our person, the orientation of our being, what we love. And I realize that flies in the face of so much self-care and self-talk that's proffered to us right now. I had a conversation with a good friend this week and he said, man, I, you know, I did this, I did this, I did this, but I realize I'm doing bad. It's not that I am bad. I said, hey man, that, that sounds like a line from a Ryan Adams song. Got a really good heart. I just can't catch a break. And if I could, I'd treat you like I wanted to. I promise. The problem is God's word and our experience tells us the opposite. It's not just that we do bad. We're oriented apart from God's grace to break stuff and relationships and people. And that's what Paul is highlighting here in verse nine, which, which put your seatbelts on, includes everyone. Like the, the, there may be some temptation in you to scan Paul's list and go like, clear, not, not me. No, no, no. Paul says, hey, do you not understand? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives us this specific list of unrighteousness. And if you just scan your eyes over it, notice that he gives five sexual sins and five non-sexual sins. Paul puts homosexual and heterosexual sins in the categories. And Paul puts in the list things that we would regard as very serious as evangelicals and things that we would regard as not serious at all, tragically, as evangelicals. I mean, evangelicals treat adultery as a really serious sin. And tragically, heartbreakingly, most evangelicals don't even know what slander is. And Paul says, there's something we need to pay attention to here, friends. There's something we shouldn't miss. God is more holy than we could ever fathom. This list isn't casual and it's not random. It's catechetical. Paul is saying, let's address stuff you struggle with on the daily. What does God say about that? Let's address stuff you deal with as you walk to work and pass the temple of Aphrodite. What does God's word say about that? Let's address the things you deal with in your heart when you think about unresolved gaps between you and your neighbor and how you're inclined to talk with them with others. What does God's word say about that? And Paul says, here's the thing you gotta understand. It's not that the unrighteous can't earn the kingdom of God. He says the unrighteous won't inherit it. See the difference? Nobody can earn God's kingdom. This isn't about earning. 
The announcement of the kingdom of God is we are in the wrong and God alone who is in the right stepped into our world and received the penalty of our wrongness so we could be clothed in his rightness forever. That's the gospel. The gospel requires, by the way, us to hear bad news about ourselves. I am unrighteous. Starting point ground zero. You, You can't just say, hey, God's more loving than you could ever fathom, which is true. And hey, friends, we will have hundreds of billions of years, those of us who trust Jesus, to stand in the presence of the resurrected and glorified Jesus. And we will never, ever come to grips with how loving he is, how gracious he is, how generous he is. Paul's not talking about how you earn something. He's talking about a disposition of the soul that resists the righteousness of God. Inheritance is about something that was given to you in the past with present and future implications for you. Paul says, don't miss it. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I love the fact that he uses this concept which is so central to his teaching, but so rare in his language. Paul doesn't regularly mention the kingdom of God. But he talks about it all the time. He talks about it all the time. And the kingdom of God implies that there's a king. It implies that there's a ruler and boundaries and rules and obligations. So Paul isn't talking about how you get in God's good graces. That that is God's unfathomable, mysterious character of generosity that puts you in his good graces. Paul says, if you have inherited that, you live like one who's inherited that. You don't live like one who's opposed to that. That's his point. He's saying, hey friends, if you've been captivated by the grace of God, then you also will be captivated by the holiness of God. They they, they don't follow in separate paths. And he says, like, this is the essence of where deception creeps in. Do not be deceived, he picks up at the end of this verse. The nature of sin lulls us into believing that's not that big a deal. That's what sin does. It's not that big a deal. Nature of sin says, hey, God doesn't really care about that. God cares about that and that and that. He cares about all your wife's junk, but not yours. He cares about all your neighbor's stuff, not yours. He's preeminently concerned with your father's malfeasance, not yours. Paul says, don't, don't be deceived. God's more holy than you could ever fathom. Do not diminish your sin. That the nature of sin tells us not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. It's like if you have, uh, what's, the gas, uh, what's the gas you have in your house that can make you really sick? Not natural gas, what is it? Carbon monoxide. It's like your carbon monoxide detectors are going off. You guys ever had this happen? And you're like, take the battery out of it. 
It only goes off at three o'clock in the morning, only. Never goes off at noon. It's like, yeah, carbon monoxide isn't that big a deal. And Paul says, don't be deceived. God's more righteous and more holy than you can ever fathom. Our, our tendency as humans is to deceive ourselves in two directions. To either say, God doesn't really care about that or my sin don't really matter. Or on the other side to say, my sins matter so much God could never love me. Paul says to that issue too, hey, don't be deceived. God is more generous. God is more gracious. God is more loving than you can ever fathom. He names his list, right? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And at that moment, we're inclined to be deceived or to deceive ourselves in one of two directions. To say, God doesn't really care. Or to say, God cares so much, I could never be welcomed at the table. You don't know who I am. You don't know my past. I had a conversation with a dear friend just last week who told me stuff about him I never knew. There's this thing inside of us that if we're not minimizing God's holiness and minimizing our sin, we're maximizing our sin in such a way that God could never love us. But look at the next thing Paul says. Such were some of you. Paul says, think about all these people that are outside the kingdom of God. You're, you're not just doing wrong, you are wrong. You're unrighteous. You love yourself more than you love God. You see that your body exists for your satisfaction, not for God's glory. I mean, we could define sin in a million different ways. Paul says, hey, don't you know? That's not the way God's kingdom works. And then for those of us that are inclined to say, I could, I could never be part of God's kingdom. Paul says, hey, your sin doesn't exclude you from God's kingdom. It qualifies you to receive his grace. Your unrighteousness, your wrongdoing doesn't disqualify you from God's kingdom or exclude you from God's kingdom. It qualifies you to receive his grace. Paul says, you guys know what this list is like because that's your resume. And it's mine. In fact, I was overwhelmed this morning with how many of these lists, and this is a small list. There's all kinds of vice lists in the Bible. And I was just overwhelmed with, that's, that's me. That's me. And, and my heart in its unrighteousness goes to, well, I'm not even worthy to stand in God's presence. How can I stand in front of these people and share God's word with them? God says, hey, I washed you. You were washed, he says in verse 11. And the ESV cleans up the grammar, but Paul uses the word but every time. But you were washed, 
but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Washing is the spiritual cleansing from sin and its power and its guilt and its dominion. Only God can do that, by the way. Religion says you can wash yourself all the time, but religion only cleans the outside. God alone can clean the inside. And I don't care if your religion is veganism or something else, woke politics, you can't make yourself clean. Neither can I. God can do that. But you were washed Paul says, God cleansed you from your guilt and from sin and its power by his grace. The church can baptize you, but only God can wash you. Now, I want to see more people baptized. Baptism is a symbol of the interior washing that God does. You want to know more about that? Come to the baptism class in a couple of weeks. And I hope we say clearly, oh, this is just a symbol. Only God can wash you. This announces to the world, he washed me. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. Sanctifying is a setting apart. And sanctifying is the continued practice of making you what God declares you to be in Jesus. Sanctification will not end in your life until you meet Jesus face to face. Someone say, Lord, come now. Sanctification is painful. In the midst of sanctification, we're inclined to deceive ourselves. God doesn't love me. No, no, no. His word says he's treating you like a son. He's treating you like a daughter. He cares so much for you that he won't leave you to yourself. In the midst of our sanctification, we're inclined to say, I mean, it was easier when I wasn't following Jesus, which may be true. But this season will last for a moment and the joy of the Lord comes in the morning, the scripture says. You were washed, Paul says. You were part of this group, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Justification declares you righteous and sanctification makes you righteous. I think washing is Paul's way of saying, that's the thing God does in you. Can you you get with both points in this passage? Hey, don't be deceived. God is more holy than we want to give him credit for. He's more righteous than we can fathom. And just as we stand up to that precipice and see the magnificence and splendor of his holiness and want to recoil back and say, a God that beautiful, a God that perfect, a God that holy could never love me. The triune God who Paul names by name, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, takes hold of us and says, no, 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 don't miss the other point. I'm more gracious, I'm more generous, I'm more loving than you could ever imagine. Friends, if you will hear that word this morning, it will set you free. It'll set you free. Some of you can hear it for the first time. You can be free today. Now keep in mind, Paul writes this because 
embracing our identity as those who are washed, those who are sanctified, those who are justified is a lifelong process. God transfers us from one kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light and we habitually find ourselves turning back to Egypt and going, the food was better there. It's a lifelong process. That's why we have God's word to say, hey, don't be deceived. Don't you know? Don't you remember? Put your seatbelts on. Pay attention. That's why God gives us his word. When, When you find yourselves under the grips of deception, God's point isn't so you kick rocks and look at your belly button and say, woe is me. He he gives us his word so that we will say, man, I'm I'm worse than I thought. And he is more glorious than I ever fathomed. You can embrace that truth today and become a full-fledged inheritor of the kingdom of God. And if you have embraced that truth, let me ask you a sincere question. Where are you laboring, and I mean laboring, to fight the deception in your life? I had a friend ask me a completely unrelated question yesterday about another of our friends who's a pastor. He said, does that guy teach things that are contrary to the scripture? And I said, well, I'm not aware of it, but I promise you he's deceived someplace because all of us are. I'm not aware of him teaching it from the pulpit. But where are you deceived? Where are you deceiving yourself? Where are you opening yourself up to deception? And where do we need to hear the loving invitation and correction of a merciful God? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. (laughs) I'm constantly blown away. You tell me not to be afraid because you know I'm afraid. You tell me not to be deceived because you know I'm prone to deception. How kind are you? How kind are you? You give us a community to walk with, to grow, to struggle, to stumble. And God, when we stumble by your grace, because of your mercy, would you cause us to turn back and run towards you, not away from you? I think the clearest description of the unrighteous in the scriptures are when when the unrighteous fall, they run further from you as a means of self-salvation. When the righteous stumble, they turn to you and say, heal me, save me, deliver me, forgive me. Holy Spirit, would you come and move among us now as we shift in our service from the proclamation of your word to the response to it? As we move to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in communion, as we have open time and margin to receive prayer. Spirit of God, I just ask that you would awaken faith. You would awaken clarity. You would let the word of God not just take root in hearts right now, but you would actually cause fruit to be born even in this moment. You would set people free now. You would heal and deliver people now. I ask in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, Amen.